This episode of New Politics was released on the 19th of August, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the coalition pushing the nuclear button again, sport and politics in the mix again in the Women's World Cup, National Cabinet agrees to consistent rental rights, but what exactly does that mean? The media pushes branch stacking again in Melbourne, and we take a look at the latest opinion polls and the voice to Parliament. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Gina Reinhardt's family counsellor. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The National Party has once again been making a push for nuclear energy in Australia and this seems to be a policy that they make in opposition and never do anything about when they're actually in government. Here's the leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, trying to explain away this conundrum. So we're not saying let's put this on pause forever, we're saying let's just use some common sense. And I thought that it was an opportunity for political leadership, not just for me, but for for Peter Dutton and for Anthony Albanese to to come forward and to look at solutions like emerging technology in net net zero small scale modular nuclear. And and we didn't do it for the nine years we were in government because while the Nationals have believed in this emerging technology, the Liberals weren't. And there was also a push that was recently made by Peter Dutton, who was also blaming the National Party for none of these ideas ever being implemented during the nine years of coalition government between 2013 and 2022. So when you run out of blaming your enemies, you can always start blaming your friends on this. But this seems to be a continuation of a lot of hot air being pushed around in national conversation just for the sake of putting pressure on the government of the day. There have been so many government reports and industry mavericks making a push for nuclear energy in Australia since the 1950s, and every single report has recommended that nuclear energy is not a viable industry in Australia, and every one of those mavericks who wanted to set up a nuclear power station in Australia realised the same issue, that it's too costly to set up and it's very unviable as well. The Coalition wanted to create a nuclear industry in the early 1990s, They also gave this a bit of a push in 2011 and now they're making big noises about it again, but they never mentioned it at all between 1996 and 2007 or between 2013 and 2022. And of course, that's during the time that they were in government. And this seems to be more about appealing to vested mining interests in Australia, but all the solutions to Australia's energy problems will rely on renewable energies and resetting some of those ridiculous gas deals the Howard government signed in the mid-2000s, and the solutions won't be found in nuclear power. Someone should invent a big plasma ball that burns for millions and millions of years, about 93 million miles away from Earth, which would give us pretty much infinite power at a very cheap rate. Or maybe we can work some way of pushing the atmosphere around so that we get clean energy using the atmosphere as natural power. Or we could dig up another very dangerous and volatile element and put it into reactors that are very hard to maintain, that have a small chance, a very small chance of failure, but the failure is catastrophic and it's expensive and really doesn't solve any problems. And of course, the coalition go with that third option. I think really their preferred option is to keep the status quo, gas and oil, as long as we can. And we can ignore the hottest summers, the colder winters, the blending of the seasons in that spring and autumn around the world seem to be shorter and less productive. And we can certainly make things a lot easier for the people who earn money from this stuff by leaving it be. On a bit more of a serious note, 
what we're really seeing is a is an opposition that has no ideas. Why didn't they bring nuclear in when they had the chance? Why do they keep going back to this when there has to be other ideas? Why aren't they being honest about what their donors want and saying, well, our donors think this is the better thing and we're here to represent this part of the community? It's bizarre and it shows just how out of touch they are. Well, it's also a case where here we are in the national conversation wasting valuable time discussing this push for nuclear power when the coalition has absolutely no intention of ever actually introducing nuclear energy in Australia. And we've said this before on New Politics, the time for nuclear power in Australia would have been in the 1950s, but that time has passed, that was 70 years ago. Small modular reactors, that time hasn't come yet, but none of this is proven on the scale that the National Party is talking about. So that's not something that we can talk about being viable or not, because it's a technology that just really isn't an option at this stage. And the coalition left all of these problems behind in the energy market when they left office in 2022. They had no clear direction on policy development or the legislation that they were trying to create. The National Party was led by Barnaby Joyce at that time, and he didn't support the National Energy Guarantee that was proposed by Malcolm Turnbull when he was the Prime Minister. And the result has been no clear future on energy, high prices for domestic consumers, a poor return from energy exports, and a failure to make any meaningful reforms in the energy sector. So I think they're the last people that we should actually be listening to on energy policy of any description. They lack a lot of credibility and always will while they continue these ridiculous and outdated attempts to be edgy. If you want to be seen as good policy people, write good policy. It's not that difficult in concept. They may find that a lot of their current policies don't work anymore, but that's not a bad thing. Well, also, they're not in government anymore, so yeah. that's that's a bigger difference. But I guess just looking at the politics of the way that conservative politicians are using nuclear energy, it seems to me to be one of those break glass in case of emergency types of issues for the coalition. And you can see that this is an issue that comes up whenever the coalition is in political trouble, whether they're in government or in opposition. And Peter Dutton talked up the prospects of nuclear power in August last year because he'd been outplayed politically on the climate change legislation that the federal government introduced last year. They talked up nuclear energy again last month when the RoboDebt Royal Commission report was released. So we can see that it's an issue that they're not really serious about. It's an opportunity to make the coalition seem relevant when they're not. And this is a debate that also seems to fall along political lines as well. Renewable energy is more of a Labor, Greens, left issue, while nuclear energy and a push to keep fossil fuels is a conservative, liberal and National Party issues. And that's not to say that the Labor Party is clean when it comes to fossil fuel industries, but at least they've got some push towards making renewable energy as a viable option. And the debate that the Conservatives keep pushing is vacuous as well. Wind turbines are apparently too ugly on rural landscapes, although they're very happy to fill up these rural landscapes with coal mines. Solar panels apparently take up too much space. And all of this is an extension of that idea of, well, what do you do when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? Well, the answer here is, well, you have battery storage to deal with that issue. And the coalition has also introduced this idea of green coal as the new catchphrase. And with this new type of technology, and again, that's not proven, and it seems to be incredibly expensive as well. So we can see that the coalition does play politics on energy policy, and they provide all the wrong answers on energy solutions. And they always look for solutions that seem to destroy the environment and protect vested interests. Yeah. They used to be able to blame the Communist Party. They can't do that anymore. Sometimes they'd kick into the public service, given what we know with how they gutted the public service and replaced them with consultants. They can't do that anymore. They occasionally try the ABC, but when you look at the makeup of the ABC and its board, they can't really do that anymore. So the only thing they have left is something that is not viable, at least at the moment, or at least hasn't had a viable plan put forward. So now they have to say, hey, energy policy is wrong. Wind farms look ugly, which is the discredited Joe Hockey started that one and was pretty quickly laughed out of the debate by people showing him pictures of coal refineries. And there's a little bit of, oh, the wind farms kill birds as if polluted air doesn't. 
the old ways are changing, I think, and they're struggling to find something that remains consistent with their policies and is logical. But because their policies are illogical, they're failing. And a few people have asked us about the cost of all of this because surely the coalition is behind all of these non-renewable areas because it must be cheaper or there must be a reason for why they're pushing this idea of fossil fuels and nuclear energy. But that's not the case at all. And despite the rises that we've seen in the cost for renewable technology over the past two years and production prices for wind have increased by 35% over the past two years and 9% for solar technology. A recent report from the CSIRO and the energy market operator shows that wind and solar are still the cheapest forms of energy and they're likely to become even cheaper with more uptake over the next few years. And and it's not a case where there's no greenhouse emissions from wind and solar. There's still some emissions that come from the production of all of those materials that go into producing renewable energy, but it ends up being a downward spiral on emissions with the more renewable industries that are created. So that's the major benefit. But on price, there's even a greater benefit for consumers. As a comparison, the capital cost per kilowatt for nuclear energy is around $7,000, while the cost per kilowatt is $1,700 for wind power and the cost for solar is $1,300 per kilowatt. Coal power, as a comparison, is around $4,000 per kilowatt, but coal with carbon sequestration technology, which is what the coalition keeps pushing as well, is around $6,500 per kilowatt or close to the cost of nuclear energy. And these figures are in US dollars, but you can get an idea of the cost comparison. So you have to wonder why the coalition keeps pushing all of these uncompetitive industries. And that's partially, I guess, to have that point of political difference, but also to support their fossil fuel supporter base and donors. And the Labor government isn't that different in that respect, but at least they're making that push towards renewable energy. And that's the way that the market is going. But the coalition keeps wanting to go in the opposite direction. These guys love free enterprise till it stops them making money. Then they want to be bailed out by the government. They want things done in the way that they can do it. You can bet none of them will actually pay for any of this infrastructure. They'll profit from it. It's to the point where it's not even hidden anymore. I've lamented before the lack of conservative intellectuals, and it's it's really sad. We've gone from robust debate to name-calling to this is the only solution and no one else has any valid opinion ever and I don't want to hear about it because I'm too stupid to work out what's going on. This is the whole nuclear debate. I am told by some progressives that nuclear is not as bad an option as we feel and that the technology for cleaning it up has gone a long way and that the risks are much so low as to be basically negligible. But we're not getting any of that from the other side. We're getting, oh, it's the only way to go. And and it's basically, how can we make money from the sun? The sun is free. Whereas if we have something that you got to, you can tie off, that's the best thing. And it's really the Edison versus Tesla versus Westinghouse argument over and over and over and over and over again. The thing is, though, is that these things always sort themselves out and you hope you find yourself on the right side. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. can write the Matildas into history. Cue the party!
Despite what the critics are saying, sport and politics do mix and sometimes it's difficult to know where the politics ends and the sports begin. And there was a big discussion about whether there would be a national holiday if the Matildas win the World Cup. And all of this started when the Daily Oz website asked the Prime Minister this question in June. This was a little TDA exclusive because last year the PM, Anthony Albanese, said he'd consider a public holiday if the Socceroos won the Men's World Cup. So we thought it sensible to ask him if the same standard would apply for the Matildas. He said it's up to each state and territory, but rest assured, should the Matildas win the World Cup on home soil, I reckon there will be a race by premiers to declare a public holiday. And here's what Anthony Albanese said to the ABC recently. Now, you've been calling for public holiday. Should they get through to the final and win? (laughs) Well, I've said uh, that the state and territory leaders should consider it, and I know that uh, it's received a pretty warm reception in most quarters, I've got to say. This is something much more than just a sporting event. Uh, This is an inspiration. Now, Anthony Albanese never declared a public holiday. He never said that there would be one, and he did say that it was up to the premiers and chief ministers, not him. And this is yet another example of how the mainstream media frames the news negatively against Labor leaders. And as the Matildas have progressed throughout the tournament, and this has been framed as yet another divisive issues, that Albanese should be holding a public holiday, even though he'd never promised one in the first place. And then Peter Dutton coming out to say that the idea was a stunt and an ego trip for Anthony Albanese. But that's what we'd expect from Peter Dutton, who says no to absolutely everything. And the idea was taken to the National Cabinet meeting this week, who decided not to hold a public holiday if the Matildas win the World Cup. And then the conservative media, such as Sky News and Seven West Media, ran with the story that this is now a major backflip from Anthony Albanese, and it's a major humiliation for him. Now, it doesn't really matter if there is a public holiday or not, and it doesn't really matter at all now, because the women's football team has been knocked out of the World Cup anyway. But it just goes to show how some loose words mentioned about something that was unlikely to happen just a few months ago is usually magnified out of all proportion by the mainstream media and by the coalition. Yeah. From what I understand, there was a very, very slim chance of the Matildas winning the Cup. So even if the Prime Minister did say if they win, there's a public holiday, he would have said that knowing that there wasn't much chance of this happening. But, of course, you can't get division out of saying, I hope they lose. Now, there was a little bit of that. Oh, they're woke and they're this and they're that, so I hope they lose, as if your political stance is really any indication of how well you play. Adam Goods from the AFL would be an example of how his ability at the game of Australian rules football became completely irrelevant to any debate about him. And how opinions of his playing before he came out and said things that were worth saying and worth listening to. Before, it was how great a player he is and what an asset he is to his team. Afterwards, it was, oh, he wasn't that good and he was a bit this and a bit that. But with the Matildas, they did seem to have captured most of the population and got them behind them. And people watched the game and were elated when they won and were devastated when they lost. So to find a non-issue to have a debate over is really typical, unsurprising, and yet somehow disappointing. And we can go back to the voice referendum. A, A decent leader of the opposition would have said either, I'm voting no because of these principled reasons of logic and policy and principle, or I'm putting politics aside because this is a really important thing and we we are supporting the yes case for this because we've listened to the Indigenous community and this is how it wants. Once this referendum is done, we will be back to kicking into the government. But we don't have a smart enough nor principled enough opposition leader. So in the case of a soccer match or a football match, we have a foolish, pointless oxygen-sucking, divisive, nasty debate over a nothing, which I don't know why you'd like that, but there you are. Oh, the other factor is that we probably should be having more public holidays anyway. There is that push towards a four-day working week and the recent wellbeing budget from the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, suggested that there needs to be a better work-life balance. So 
maybe we should have a public holiday just to celebrate women's sport, even though they didn't win the mm. World Cup. But I did notice that Peter Dutton, in his attacks on Anthony Albanese, he suggested that if he is elected as Prime Minister, and I think there's as much chance of that happening as there is for the men's football team to win the next World Cup, but he said that he'd establish a $250 million fund for community sports infrastructure and coincidentally that's the same amount that was funded during the sports rorts fiasco led by Senator Bridget McKenzie and it's actually got the same name as the fund that was used in sports rorts and there was actually no mention by Peter Dutton of specific funding for women's sports so you'd think that Dutton might have been a little bit more circumspect when announcing this funding proposal but he's probably banking on the electorate having short memories about the sports rort drama and he'll probably twist this around to make it seem like he was a Labor government responsible for the sports rorts affair anyway and not the coalition. And the media will run with whatever he says, no matter how ridiculous and stupid and pointless and wrong-headed it is, they will run with it. And I guess that's his only hope of getting any coverage at all, a soft media, because if they had a decent media, he wouldn't be touched with a barge pole. But I also think that a lot of this shows that there's going to be every attempt to portray the Labor government in a negative light. And sure, Albanese had a thought bubble given to a very, very small media outlet a few months ago, but every tiny issue of negativity can be found by a news corporation and every matter of insignificance can be pushed as a failure for... Anthony Albanese. And while the Matildas didn't make it to the final of the World Cup, it's a fantastic result for women's sport in Australia. But of course, as you mentioned before, David, this had to be played out along political lines. There were those unhinged right-wing conservatives hoping that the Matildas would lose, and they ended up getting their wishes, of course. And that was because the Matildas are too woke. They support the voice to parliament, and they support same-sex marriage. And then there's that racial undercurrent that football is a migrant game in Australia. So there's a little bit of xenophobia Mm. there as well. But it just seems that there's nothing that's out of bounds for the miserable, sad sacks of conservative politics in Australia. And we should be celebrating the success of women's sports, celebrate the achievements of women in a sport that's dominated by men. But it just seems that for a certain group of people in society, they can't tolerate much change at all. And it's all a bit too much for them. Football or soccer is a funny thing in Australia in that it is the most popular team sport in the country in terms of all the amateur leagues that play around the country every weekend in well in winter yet it's never really pushed through to mainstream acceptance and it is worth noting that we may have actually seen the turning of the corner that has been promised forever with women leading the way the other thing i guess it is worth mentioning too is that the Australian netball team won the Netball World Cup. Well, we should have a public holiday for that too. Because the Netball World Cup players decided they didn't want the sponsorship of Gina Reinhardt, they got no coverage and the only coverage they have had was fairly negative. The establishment is still trying to play favourites. And yes, if if we're going to value this stuff, we should have a public holiday when Australians win the world anything. It doesn't happen that much, but it does happen on occasion. It is absolutely worth celebrating that, even a half day off with a bit of notice given so people who are relying on the income on that day can reorganise their income in a way that suits everybody. It's very interesting watching the society of this or the sociology of this play out. There was a national cabinet meeting during the week and that's the meeting where all the state and territory leaders and the Prime Minister meet to discuss the national issues of the day and work towards providing a consensus and solutions and it's about the only decent thing that Scott Morrison introduced while he was Prime Minister to replace the previous heads of government system with the national cabinet and first of all national cabinet did rule out a public holiday if the Matildas won the World Cup. But they did make an announcement to add 200,000 additional homes to the National Housing Accord over the next five years, and that brings the total number up to 1.2 million new homes, and also setting up national consistency on rental rules for evictions, limiting rent increases to once per year, and phasing in minimal rental standards. And the details on this are not clear at the moment, but the Australian Greens have already started to attack what the federal government is proposing. And it's probably a case where 
it wouldn't really matter what the federal government is proposing on this issue. The Greens will attack it because they've decided that the rental market is also their market for political opportunities in the future. I don't quite know whether this will solve the housing crisis. It may alleviate it. And, of course, it's social housing, not public housing. And we probably need more public housing. I suppose we should say that any small start is a good start and that hopefully this is just the first step in solving the the market in a viable, long-term and practical way. Again, the Greens have hopefully learnt their lessons from earlier in the year where they were totally outmaneuvered and that they actually are able to wrest real victories out of their policies. I've said before, the Greens are the broadest of the political parties and have a lot of people to appease or or at least a wide range of opinions to appease from the genuinely committed knock every building down and let's go back to nature on one end to the it all should be done but nowhere where I can see it, feel its effects or have to pay for it in any way on the other end. And the other parties have the same thing. I'm not trying to kick into the Greens here at all. I'm just saying that it's going to be challenging for them. But if they want to have a say in this, wise and sober heads need to sit down and work out their best strategy. Now, renters are a vital part. Most of us rent at some point of our life. Some people rent for all their lives. There's an argument that basically says it's better to rent than to pour your money into the dead money of mortgage interest and that you can use what you save in renting rather than paying a mortgage into investing and then buying a house outright. I don't know how valid or viable that is at the moment. I think the notion that moving towards long-term leases where you have to give two years notice to move out and you sign leases for 10 years that are automatically renewed I think is a good thing. And I know that a lot of landlords think, oh, this is against us. But a lot of those landlords see property as a short-term money-grubbing investment. The other thing I would do is put a some kind of cap on Airbnb, which might kill Airbnb, but that's okay. It, it hasn't worked in the way it was meant to and probably needs to be rethought anyway. Well, I think that on this entire issue, I don't think we should have low ambitions, but the announcement of 200,000 additional dwellings is good news. It should be a lot, lot more than that, but I guess we need to encourage the government to do all of these things. It's There needs to be a lot more to make up for the shortfall during the coalition years in government, and they had close to zero interest in social housing. Making rental laws consistent around Australia is a good idea, but we're not sure what those consistent laws are going to be. Having a limit of one rental increase per year is good, but there's no limit on what that rental increase could be, so it's hard to know what's being proposed here. Rent freezes and rent caps have been ruled out and economists are divided over whether freezes and caps can work effectively and in some cases have unintended consequences. And as you mentioned, David, there were no discussions about the effects of Airbnb and short-term rentals on the rental market and whether there needs to be an Airbnb tax or not. And the other issue that quite a few people have pointed out is that six of the nine leaders in National Cabinet do own multiple rental properties. And I'd like to think that in this situation, it doesn't affect their decision-making, but it's not so much the leaders, it's all the other MPs. And on average, members of parliament own two rental properties. And we had the case of one National Party senator, Barry O'Sullivan, he owned 50 rental properties. So leaders that make tough decisions on a particular area that affect their backbenchers might face internal problems down the track. So I'd like to think that this hasn't influenced their decision-making processes, but either way, it seems that not enough is being done on housing issues all across Australia. Yeah, all governments are to blame for this. The only time they've been bold is in improving things for large landholders or large property holders. The negative gearing notion, a lot of people misunderstood it and lost a lot of money, not understanding that you can only negative gear things that you're losing money on. Everyone saw it as this magic money machine, tried to push it that way, and now there's mortgage stress and the Hawke government didn't really mean it to turn out the way it did, but it turned out that way anyway. Probably should never have been implemented. 
and all of these things get into the fact that now we have people who can't afford to live in the cities yet need to live in the cities because that's where the jobs are. I know that there are uh, incentives to move to larger regional centres, but there's no point in moving out of a place where you're unemployed to another place where you'll be unemployed. It seems to have worked for some people who have been able to find work in Orange or Tamworth or Ballina or wherever, or who can work from home or the other options that we have now. But it's still not brilliant. It's a start. And I think that's fair to say, and I think it would be churlish to be too hypercritical of it. I just hope that they don't see it as a finish, that we've given you an extra 200,000 buildings, deal with it. And I think that is the critical point. But just as a voting block, there are 8 million renters across Australia. And according to YouGov, 32% of these vote for the Labor Party and 19% vote for the Coalition. 25% don't support either side or generally swing from election to election. So that's a substantial difference. And, and as the amount of renters increases over time, it would be in Labor's political interest to make legislative changes that support this group of people. And you'd think, well, this is what's part of Labor Party policy and part of the Labor Party platform. So why wouldn't you do all of these things anyway? But the Australian Greens, they also want to appeal to these voters as well. And home ownership or renting seems to fall across the political divide as well. And this is what the Thatcher government realised in the UK. The Tories pushed home ownership because they thought that they would get more votes. And that's exactly what happened there. But that's a situation that's reversing in the UK, as it is in Australia. There are more people renting now, and that's a number that's likely to increase. And the Greens would like to move towards that European-style leasing that you mentioned before, that long-term renting arrangement where the rental protections are far stronger than what they are in Australia. And that's a long way away for Australian renters. And I think that the COVID pandemic would have provided an opportunity for those long-term situations to be realised, but that didn't seem to happen. And the Housing Australia Future Fund, that's still stalled in the Senate. And I don't think that an additional 200,000 dwellings and the $3 billion of additional funding is going to change any of that. The Australian Greens do have some very, very good points about the inadequacies of this future fund. But I'm pretty sure that even if the government provided something that they were highly satisfied with, they'd probably still likely to oppose it because there's still quite a few votes that they could gain from all of this. Yeah, and again, the the Greens find themselves in a very difficult position and there is a sense in which they're in the damned if they do. You've let go of one of your principles and they're damned if they don't. Can't you work with a team and learn the art of compromise? I'm sure there's a solution for them, but it, it will have to come from them. I don't think it'll be as something as vital as changing the, the leadership, but certainly changing the leadership's attitudes towards things and making sure that any changes they make are clearly explained and articulated to their members, knowing that they're going to disappoint some members anyway. That is the lot of Anthony Albanese. It was the lot of Bob Brown and uh, all the other uh, leaders of broad church parties. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. There were more branch stacking allegations in Victoria and this time it's the resurfacing of allegations from 2020 which I thought were resolved some time ago and the allegations surround Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio in the Layla South branch where after an audit in 2020 found that only 13 of the 132 branch members were registered. Now 
There's a few issues here to take into account. Branch stacking is not illegal, but it is against the rules of the Labor Party. It is a crime to forge memberships, though, but branch stacking in itself is not a criminal activity, and all parties engage in it, whether it's in their party rules or not. And there is this idea that branch stacking is a Labor Party pastime, but the biggest stackers of all are in the Liberal Party. Just go and ask Scott Morrison, for example. But it has also been alleged that two people who had died were still members of the Layla South branch, but it's not as though these small branches have got the administrative support or large office teams that do all the paperwork and update their records the day that someone dies. There's probably a lot of people that have moved on, forget to update their records. Branch membership for a lot of members of all political parties is not really such a big deal, so these things can be overlooked. But I really think that this is just another storm in a teacup and it also gives the Herald Sun and News Corporation another round of anti-Daniel Andrews news to run with. It also gives the Liberal Party a chance to refer all these matters to IBAC in Victoria, even though it was already cleared by IBAC in 2020. And we can see what's going to happen here. IBAC will come back to say that there's no corruption issue here and the Liberal Party and News Corporation will say that IBAC is also corrupt and the cycle continues. The only thing IBAC could do that would make them happy would be to march up the steps of Spring Street, arrest Daniel Andrews, put him in the back of a paddy wagon and drive him off to a gulag somewhere. All the while, while they denounce communism and totalitarianism, you know... We're allowed to disagree with Daniel Andrews, but he hasn't done, in this case, a lot to be criticised for. IBAC cleared them of branch stacking, and that's the end of it. IBAC, I'm not quite sure that it's been treated the same as the New South Wales ICAC, which had its funding cut right in the middle of some fairly crucial investigations by the governments who were being investigated. But there's been nothing to suggest that it's biased one way or the other, and there's been nothing to suggest that it's run by anything but people of the highest integrity, which is, of course, what the right hate about it. It keeps getting its own people rather than the people who it wants it to get. They're not political organisations. They are judicial organisations, and they are above politics. If they are proved not to be, or if they're shown not to be, then yes, we will absolutely criticise them. But I haven't seen any evidence that they're favouring one side over the other. The Victorian Liberal Party is a basket case, driven by the religious right, unelectable, and unable to gain any foothold, much like the Liberal Party in every other state. But again, a total clean-out is needed and reasoned argument needs to come back into play. And that new politics, we love laying the boots into the mainstream media because it is thoroughly unprofessional, but their behaviour in Victoria is close to insufferable. Every media conference held by the Premier, Daniel Andrews, is hijacked by a news corporation. They make allegations which have got no substance to them and are based on something that might have happened years ago and cleared by a corruption commission. And then this all appears in their newspapers, on their websites and through social media, and that's because... Daniel Andrews says there's nothing to see here because realistically there isn't and he's got something to hide and it's probably something that's corrupt and it's absolutely relentless. And if I was Daniel Andrews, I'd ban these journalists from News Corporation from attending these media conferences. I'd just say, well, look, you're a public nuisance. You're writing rubbish anyway. We're going to revoke your media pass. Jeff Kennett did that. So why can't Daniel Andrews do that? And I know that this would create another backlash. You know, look at Dictator Dan. He's so corrupt, he won't even let the media in to shine the spotlight on him. So maybe having to deal with News Corporation journalists at media conferences and put up with their antagonism, that's probably the least worse option. And of course, as you mentioned, David, all political leaders should be accountable for their actions, but they shouldn't be accountable for the things that they haven't done or some imaginary stories manufactured by News Corporation, and this is effectively a rinse and repeat process. It's what they did with that story from 2013 when a car driven by Catherine Andrews had a collision with a cyclist. They regurgitated that story just before the 2022 Victoria election, and it's still doing the rounds now that Daniel Andrews has done something terrible in this accident, even though he wasn't driving the car. And it's also an issue from 10 years ago, and it's the same sort of situation now. This branch stacking story is from... 2020 and a repeat from 2018 and it's 
put into the public spotlight now. The public really doesn't understand what branch stacking is, but here it is. You know, Daniel Andrews has done something corrupt, and if the IBAC doesn't find that there's any evidence of corruption, well, they must be corrupt as well. So there's just no way that Daniel Andrews can win with the conservative media in Melbourne. No, and you went overseas and didn't take a press pack, and they howled and howled and howled about it, and yet the world somehow didn't end. Victoria is still a part of mainland Australia. Melbourne still stands to its millions of great citizens <laughs> when he cancelled the uh, the Commonwealth Games. That was meant to be the end of it. Yet Victoria remains a part of the mainland. Melbourne still stands. Bendigo hasn't fallen into a sinkhole. It's really insane. What they hate, of course, is a popular leftish leader who keeps getting stuff done. The latest one is that he's tired and he's about to resign and I'm wondering how much of that is wishful thinking rather than based on any fact or any indication that this may be the case. He's always been very gracious to the press, whereas I'm wondering if the Keating approach of treat stupidity with contempt, and it doesn't matter who's asking the question, if it's an irrelevant or not smart question, then it gets treated with utter contempt. It must tempt him sometimes. I wonder if he goes back to his office thinking, I should have just rip Rachel Baxendale apart. I shouldn't have answered Neil Mitchell. I should have told him how ridiculous that question was. But then I wonder, there's no point. It's not going to change them. It's not going to even shame them. These people have no sense of shame or accountability. So what he does, though, is what irritates them most, keeps on governing well for all Victorians, including themselves. And I don't know that we can ask much more of anyone, really. And there have been several polls that came out during the week. The Morgan poll showed that the Labor government is still leading strongly at 54.5% to 45.5% in the two-party preferred vote. And the Resolve poll suggests that this figure is at 56% for the Labor government and 44% for the coalition. So the government is still in a strong electoral position. But the polls for the Voice of Parliament have gone down even further with the no vote in the proposed referendum on average standing at 54% to 46% for the yes vote. And while this doesn't seem to be affecting the opinion polls for the government, it seems that it is affecting the perceptions of the Prime Minister and for the Leader of the Opposition. 44% rated Albanese's performance as good and 42% rated him as poor. And his net approval rating is now 2%, which is a dramatic drop of 14 points over the past month. And Peter Dutton's net approval rate is minus 13 points, and that's up by two points. So we can see what the strategy of the coalition attacks on the voice to parliament is all about. There is a correlation between the drop in support for the voice to parliament and the drop in the personal approval for Anthony Albanese. So they're achieving one set of goals in their repulsive attacks on the voice to parliament, but not the other, which was to diminish the federal government. And you've mentioned this before, David, a defeat of a referendum doesn't result in the defeat of a government. And the recent opinion polls seem to suggest this. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not sure that it's really about the voice to parliament, that there's been a drop. There's a whole range of other things. I don't really believe the opinion polls about the voice. They all seem skewed and biased in a way. And it doesn't seem to reflect what's going out in the community. So I, I think that if we look at things like AUKUS, and one of the things that we probably should talk about is the Labor Party conference where they w weren't allowing debate on the AUKUS treaty. I think things like housing and the cost of living, most of which can be sheeted back to the coalition government, but it is the Labor government who have to deal with it. I think that's probably more so than, than a referendum that I think more people are more broadly in favour of than not. But it gives our racist and parochial media a chance to kick in on something that they don't want attention brought to themselves over. Even though, of course, it was the Liberal Party who first suggested the notion of a voice to Parliament. That's not politically expedient for them anymore. And I think this far out from an election, they, all of these opinion figures 
and opinion polls don't actually mean that much. The numbers for the party vote are more or less the same as they've been for the government over the past 15 months, and it's definitely an improvement on the vote that they actually received on Election Day in May 2022. But the biggest issue is the fall in the support for Anthony Albanese, and most of this has been attributed to the negative campaign against the voice to Parliament. And it's been a sad case where racism, lies and misinformation have been used by the no side to achieve their political goals. And I think it partially explains why Albanese has tried to distance himself somewhat from the voice to Parliament. And that doesn't excuse this situation. It's quite cowardly to set up a process for social change in Australia and then walk away from it when it gets a little bit too difficult. But leaders with high disapproval ratings are still electable. Scott Morrison and Tony Abbott had even higher disapproval ratings at the time that they won elections. And they were highly polarising and combative characters. Now, Albanese isn't like that, but maybe it's a case where the public does want to see someone who is more combative on the issues that they believe in. And we discussed this last week, David. Albanese needs to stop being polite, especially to the people who are not deserving of that politeness. And there might be other issues that you mentioned before that could be creeping into these higher disapproval ratings, but this is definitely one of those issues. The electorate wants to see a strong, tough leader, and maybe they're not seeing enough of that in Anthony Albanese at the moment. That could be the thing. And I think, too, one of the strategies of Labor has been to be different to the last style of leadership. But I think they do need to remember that the last style of leadership is held in complete contempt and probably should be treated in that way in in many ways. They shouldn't be nice to the opposition just because it's the right thing to do. I think they need to show the public that they hold the opposition and its policies and its tactics in as much contempt as the general public does. So I do think that there are things that are happening that are maybe a bit out of their control that is frustrating. So there have been those perceptions that Albanese's performance on the voice of parliament has been lacklustre and low in energy, and there was also a further call for the referendum to actually be called off. Here's Senator Lydia Thorpe addressing the National Press Club during the week, and she's coming from a different perspective to the rest of the No campaign, making the case for treaty, truth-telling and reparations. The voice is the window dressing for constitutional recognition. We have rejected constitutional recognition before. It is a 20-year-old Howard-era policy created with the explicit purpose of undermining sovereignty, self-determination and land rights for First Peoples. The voice is the easy way to fake progress without actually having to change a thing. It is a destructive distraction absolving the government of its continued crimes. We have done what everyone should do and actually analyse the proposed voice for the conservative proposal of a powerless advisory body that it is. We are merrily pointing out that there is no progress, that there is false hope and that we deserve better. This is why we should call off the referendum. It has caused nothing but harm and division. And for what? There won't be change until this society changes, until this society's thinking, values, attitudes and systems have been revolutionised in order to ensure real self-determination. We cannot continue the legacy of the Australian colony. Treaty provides us with the opportunity to negotiate on the things that matter to us. This includes, but is not limited to, land and sea rights. The courts recognise that terra nullius was a myth and that this land is ours. But instead of land rights, we got native title a token gesture that has caused many disputes in our communities. And that can be extinguished by the government of the day with a flick of a pen. But we have an opportunity in this country right now to have treaties of the 21st century. Treaty 
is what we make it. It has to come from the people. And the best part, you don't need a referendum for a treaty, just a government who is willing. There's a lot of points in there that, yes, the voice to parliament has become a divisive issue, but look at all the people who are causing the division. It's the people like Warren Mundine, who in 2017 supported exactly what the voice to parliament is proposing, but is now arguing the opposite side. It's people like Peter Dutton. It's the National Party. It's Jacinta Price. It's News Corporation. All of these people are not going to support a treaty or Mm. truth-telling or reparations. So if they're not going to support a voice to parliament they're probably not going to support all of these other things, but at least you don't need a referendum to go down this path. So the question is, well, should this process start all over again and have the past 15 months just been a waste of time? And if the government works towards a treaty, the Conservatives would have a field day. Peter Dutton ramps up his stupid brand of muscular politics, which is what Annabelle Crabb suggested during the week and supported by the freak show of the media. So... I want to see all of the above. I want to see constitutional recognition and I want to see the voice of parliament. I want to see a treaty with First Nations people. I want to see truth-telling. I want to see reparations. All of the above. But it's just such a quagmire when you've got people like Peter Dutton in politics and a white-controlled mainstream media who are just there to make sure that progress on these issues is never achieved. A decent media would have seen Peter Dutton nowhere near them meaning that he'd have to improve his rhetoric, meaning that he couldn't rely on dog whistling. And this goes back to at least John Howard. And I suppose privilege protects privilege. The second that people get called out, the whole edifice falls down very quickly. I think truth is going to out. I think history has moved beyond this notion of racism, that Australia is a white nation. One, really never was. But two, particularly since 1975, stop being an Anglo nation in any case. We still have, of course, racist and awful opinions out there, but they're amplified by a media that wants to keep that. If we could reform the media, a lot of this would disappear, maybe not overnight, but very quickly. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.